0: Uh, colloquium series. Uh, we're here. Uh, wonderful occasion. It's my honor uh, to be up here with Ethan Zuckerman, who will be speaking today uh, about his new book. Uh, my name is Ian Condry. Uh, I'm a professor in comparative media studies and also in foreign languages and literatures. Uh, and I'm also affiliated with the Center for Civic Media here at MIT. Uh, just give a, a quick uh, introduction, and Ethan will tell us more about himself. Uh, but Ethan Zuckerman is a man of many talents uh, and many experiences. Uh, he brings a really unique and fascinating perspective that's really enlivened uh, the debates here at the Center for Civic Media and at MIT more generally in so many fascinating ways. Uh, he is the director uh, of the Center for Civic Media uh, and he is also a co-founder of this really important blogging community called Global Voices. Uh, he has a long experience uh, with the Berkman Center for internet and society at Harvard as well. Uh, the main topic of his talk today uh, is his new book, uh, Rewired, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Uh, I've asked him to give a, a brief uh, talk about it, and then we'll have an open, a more open-ended discussion afterwards. We'll go until about seven o'clock, and there'll be a reception afterwards here in this room. Uh, so if you have time to join that, though, please do. Uh, and without further ado, please join me in welcoming Ethan Zuckerman.
1: Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. That, that's really kind of you. Um, should this be doing something that it's not doing, or is it doing what it's correctly doing? It's doing what it's correctly doing. Excellent. So I, I, will, I will project and reach people in the back of the room. Thank you all for coming out. I really appreciate it. It's uh, nice to get the chance to talk about these ideas here. Um, it's really interesting when you finish writing a book because you've been working on it for five years and on the one hand you're really sick of it and you want to be working on the next thing and on the other hand it's the thing that you're best qualified to talk about because you've just spent five years about it. So what I'm going to hope to do is sort of give you some background on my thinking behind it and then actually get into some of the contemporary research we're doing over at Center for Civic Media and how it sort of connects to these ideas of digital cosmopolitanism and sort of trying to figure out how we get Pictures of the somewhat interconnected and somewhat not interconnected world that we're living in. And because I'm interested in this notion of sort of differing pictures of the world, I wanted to start with this uh, quite iconic image, uh, often referred to as the blue marble image. Um, this is the first picture of Earth from outer space. It's the first time we have uh, an external view of what the entire Earth looks like. It's a shot taken by the Apollo 17 crew. And it's gone on most likely to be uh, the most circulated image in history in terms of a single photograph. And I'm interested in this photograph not just because it's a very beautiful image, but because this image became um, something with an enormous amount of significance and a motive weight uh, to the environmental movement. Uh, If you look through the environmental movement, you see this image recurring. You see it on the cover of the Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, You see it showing up on any number of fundraising appeals. This is an image that in some very real way allowed people to start imagining the planet in a way that they hadn't imagined it before. Uh, Imagining it as sort of a single connected whole. Imagining it as something that when seen from far away looks surprisingly fragile and surprisingly delicate. uh, Something that's interconnected that one has to deal with as an entire System, Essentially, this image becomes a symbol for visualizing yourself in relationship to Earth in a, in a very specific sort of way. And in this sense, in, in that sense of being an emotive object, this is something that we, we've seen before. We, we see it uh, in the work of Benedict Anderson, uh, who, when he looks at the question of nationalism, sort of makes this argument that it's very hard to think of ourselves as part of a nation until we... We have uh, different objects that we can interact with that essentially say uh, I am an American I am a Brit uh, and that might be a newspaper in many cases for Anderson it's a map when you start looking at a map and saying I am one of the people who are in the pink places or I am one of the people who reads the Times of London it's impossible for us to imagine all the other people who are part of the British Empire so instead we react to the sort of um, highly charged object an object that they basically represents our membership in that sort of set, or our membership in that sort of class. So I've been interested in what are those objects, what are those artifacts that help us think about who we are as citizens connected by the internet. Uh, And ten or so years ago, the object that I used to use in pretty much every talk was this map. Uh, And this is another map of the Earth from space. Uh, This is a very different sort of image. This is a composite image. And this is a NASA image that came out in 2000. It's basically a compilation of different slices of imagery of the Earth at night, sewed together into a single coherent whole. And this image became incredibly important to people who are working on digital divide issues. So people like me who were working in sub-Saharan Africa in the late 1990s asking this question of who's going to be connected to communication networks, who's going to be left out of them. We would all bring up images like this and we would basically say, look, you know, at this point we can expect that the U.S. and Europe and Japan and maybe even India will be connected, but any place that's in a dark spot of this map and that it doesn't have electrical power is in danger of being being a dark spot on this map in the sense that we won't know anything and we won't have any connection to those places because we were trying to make the argument that if you actually wanted a worldwide web if you actually wanted an internet that connected everybody together you would have to do the hard work of building infrastructure you would have to do the hard work of of building on the ground the power systems, the connection systems to actually see the potential to live up to the rhetoric associated with, with the internet as a whole turned out we were wrong actually turned out that we get an enormous amount of information even from parts that would still show up as dark on this map. turned out that we got the technology wrong, that it's actually become incredibly easy to create and disseminate media using devices that consume very little power. Uh, and that in fact, this isn't an even proxy for who's represented and who's not represented. India, for instance, turns out to be very poorly represented in a lot of online conversations despite the fact that you actually do have a power grid that follows the rail lines in some sort of cases. So these images, these images of how we view the world can end up being very deceptive, they can end up giving us a picture that turns out to be wrong on one level or another, but one way or another they help us think about what are the problems we're trying to address, what are the potentials of these networks. So in sort of searching for what I think is the picture many of us have of a contemporary world where we're connected by so many different infrastructures, I've been looking at couple of different possibilities. One of the ones that I find myself thinking a lot are maps of the spread of disease. So this is a map of how SARS initially spread. Um, SARS, if you can sort of turn your mind back about a decade and sort of think about the spread of this virus, starts in southern China Appears mysteriously. Suddenly, you have entire hospitals filled with people getting sick very, very quickly. You have people who did nothing more than live together in the same hotel for a day or two being infected. And then, because of global travel networks, you have all those people at the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong going to their home countries. And suddenly, you have epidemics in Vietnam, and you have an epidemic in Canada, and you have a raging epidemic in China. And very, very quickly, people who are studying disease start discovering that there's enormous proximity between places that we're used to thinking is very, very far apart. So one way to think about this interconnected world is about the mobility of people. Uh, People, in this case, who are infected. We might think about the mobility of people who are moving from country to country. This is a visualization called People Move In, and it's a, a, a visualization of who emigrates from where and who immigrates to where. And over time you get sort of a picture of who's leaving and who's going to where and what's the mobility of global labor. How do people end up shifting to go to where jobs exist and from where jobs didn't exist. We might start thinking of a connected world in terms of where our stuff comes from. Possibly the most interesting project that came out of Center for Civic Media preceding my time there, I had nothing to do with it, is Leo Bonani's brilliant work that looks at the supply chains for very simple objects. This is a supply chain uh, for a laptop. Uh, Putting together all the different components that show up on the devices that most of us have with us or near us pretty much at every time, but realizing that we're actually connected to the flow of atoms from many many different places in the world. We might go back to these very technical maps and sort of say, how's the information getting from one place to another? We now have beautiful, thoughtful maps for companies like telegeography that sort of show us where bits are able to flow because we've actually made the connections back and forth to them. All of these, I would argue, are maps that help us sort of think about a world in which the stuff we consume, the people we interact with, the ideas we encounter might in fact come from anywhere but I think the map that for me has probably best sort of captured the emotion of this moment in time is is this map And this is a map that got produced about three years ago. It got produced from perhaps uh, the best internship ever. Uh, This guy, Paul Butler, uh, as an undergrad, had the chance to come to Facebook. And the cool thing about working at Facebook is not just that they have great campuses and really good food, but they're pretty much the only people who get access to Facebook's data. I will say, as someone who works with research data, I've been trying hard to get access to Facebook's data for five years from close friends who work there, I never got as close as Paul Butler did as an intern working within Facebook. And Butler wanted to ask a very simple question, which is basically, who's friends with who on Facebook? And so he took a tiny subset of the Facebook data, a representative sample, and he started graphing those geographic ties. So if I'm on Facebook and I'm in Cape Town and I am friends with people who are here in Boston, we get a little blue line between the two places. And in places where the connections are really, really dense, they very quickly turn into white lines. So basically, blue is a sparse connection. White is an extremely dense connection. You can start seeing that there are parts of the globe that immediately get intensely connected together. People are connected with lots of other people in those regions. We're seeing the intense density of connection within that space. And what's interesting is Facebook embraced this map almost immediately. This came out as an intern's research project and you start seeing it all over the place in Facebook's propaganda. So when Mark Zuckerberg decides that he wants to launch a network to provide global connectivity by which he actually means he wants to strike deals with handset manufacturers to make Facebook load more quickly than it would otherwise load, his way of showing Facebook's global aspirations as a company are to show this map, showing up on the monitor in his office, because this is evidence, rhetorically, that Facebook is the technology that connects us all. It's the thing that allows us to be not just six degrees of separation, but as people at Facebook have told us, less than four degrees of separation from anybody else on the planet who is on the network but again, remember these maps end up being sort of deceptive, this map I would argue is trying to make a rhetorical statement it's trying to say we're all a couple degrees from one another in just a hop or two you could find yourself interacting in a friendship in a conversation with any of the billion other Facebook users on the globe, but you start looking a little bit more closely and you start seeing that it's actually a bit of a false promise for one thing we have a lot of these same dark spots Uh, I always look at Africa first. It's where I've done most of my work over the last 20 years. You have more or less exactly the same dark spots on the African continent as you had on the map uh, coming from NASA. You have a strong concentration around uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and Accra, Ghana. You have a nice little concentration around Nairobi and Kampala. South Africa shows up well. Very few others show up well. There's other parts where there's actual high degrees of connectivity, but there's in fact... No connections there. China's completely missing. China blocks Facebook. So pretty much no one is logging on from China unless they have a great way of getting around the Great Firewall. You've got Moscow. Moscow shows up. It's this tiny little dot there. It's barely on it at all. Russia doesn't block Facebook. No one in Russia uses Facebook. They use VKontakte. It's an entirely different network. It, it's in Russian. It's native to Russian. People do far better with it. The case that I'm trying to make in this very convoluted fashion is that we get a lot of rhetoric at this moment in time about a connected world. And some of that rhetoric represents an actual reality. Our stuff tends to be incredibly global. If we actually pull apart your laptop, there's a pretty good argument that you can't build this without global supply chains, huge dependencies, and interconnections with other economies. If we start looking at labor mobility, there is an incredible amount of mobility. I'm sure we have at least half a dozen nations represented in this room, but it's mobility that people push against and people sort of struggle with and often ends up being a source of tension. When we get to the mobility of bits, when we get to the mobility of ideas and thoughts and memes and culture, we have an incredibly high degree of potential mobility, but the actual mobility can be a whole lot lower. So the potential mobility on a network like Facebook is incredibly high. If you knew the right path, you could almost certainly find someone in Lagos who would have a conversation with you. You are no more than three steps separated from that person. The odds, however, that the idea is going to get from the person in Lagos onto your Facebook feed are near zero, because that's not actually how these networks work. The way this network actually works is it's designed to reinforce your existing connections. The average person here has 130 Facebook friends. In a room like this, it's way, way higher than this. But across the board, the average person has 130 friends on Facebook. And when you look at that whole thing, about 13% of ties on Facebook or international. And at first glance, that is a strikingly huge number. That suggests that the average person um, you know, has has somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 people from other than the country that they're in that they're in regular contact with. But averages lie, right? The average person also has you know one breast and one testicle. It doesn't work out <laughs> extremely well. When you actually figure out what goes on in this network, it turns out that if you are someone living or working abroad, you probably have 80 to 90 percent of your ties outside of that country. And when you look at a typical Facebook user, their network is absolutely overwhelmingly domestic. There's a lot of ties, but they tend to be ties that come from people who've moved. And what Facebook actually does is it's an incredibly effective technology at keeping you connected to your existing social network when you've been uprooted from that network and sort of put somewhere else. So it looks like we have this incredible rich network, and in some senses we do because part of that richness comes from people who are living and working outside of their country of origin and then using Facebook as that anchor that's sort of trying to bring them home. But if our dream from something like Facebook is, hey, now we've got a global internet, we're now going to be able to pay attention to what's going on all over the world, we have to ask some very hard questions about whether that's just something that we're imagining. And so I call this idea imaginary cosmopolitanism. I think we spend a lot of time in a digital age imagining that we have more access to perspectives and views and culture. That cross boundaries of language and culture then actually happen. And I I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. The main reason I think this is interesting is that I think imagining that the internet gives us this very high level of connection has allowed us to sort of scale back on some of our other technologies. So I started getting interested in this question when I was living in Ghana, West Africa. We had an incredibly successful election in Ghana in the year 2000. Uh, We had a democratic transfer of power We had someone who had taken power in a coup step down. Uh, We had an exciting new president take over. And it got almost no attention uh, outside of Ghanaian media. Uh, It got a 200-word story on page A12 of the New York Times. Uh, And I was sort of watching this from afar and sort of going, "Wait, wait a second. This is the best news that's come out of West Africa in the last 10 years. We're not paying any attention at all. My first instinct was to say, geez, newspapers are really falling down. They're not embracing new technology, they haven't figured out how to report stories from other parts of the globe. And in fact, what's actually going on is a much broader trend. American media and also UK media have just gone through this dramatic shift where they've gotten incredibly more parochial over the last 40 years. Both U.K. and U.S. newspapers and broadcast television have dramatically shrunk how much international news they're showing on any given day in the case of uh, American TV news where we have really nice data going back about 40 years we can see a peak around the height of the Vietnam War where roughly one out of three stories is an international news story we're now down to about one in eight and we actually see almost exactly the same shrinkage in UK newspapers We a 45% drop even in very high quality papers like The Guardian and The Guardian is sort of crazy if we look at it because you're actually having a shrinkage in the absolute number of stories. The number of international stories that get printed in the Guardian has shrunk by 45% while the paper has expanded by a factor of four. So if you're taking a random walk through the newspaper, the chance that you're going to find that international news story starts getting very slim. And it's it's not an even falling back from the world. It's, it's a deeply uneven falling back from the world. There are parts of the world where there is very, very little chance that through formal news mechanisms, someone's going to pay attention to you. So this is a map of the New York Times. Uh, Catherine DiIgnazio and and, and Rahul Bargav helped put it together. Uh, But it's running based on data, analyzing each story in the New York Times over the course of a month, putting it on a map and coloring in terms of intensity. And we start getting these maps that look incredibly similar. I have to label them really carefully on my hard drive because I can't tell them apart one ten years ago and one that's contemporary, other than changing the color palettes, they end up showing the same thing. The New York Times, God bless it, best newspaper in the United States, amazing work, has amazing persistent blind spots. You almost never get anything on sub-Saharan Africa. You get nothing on Central Asia. You get very, very little in Eastern Europe. You get a massive over-focus on Western Europe. You actually have gotten much better lat-am over the last couple of years. You end up with these sort of systemic imbalances. And if you end up doing a map like this and coloring it per population, they actually pop even more. You start discovering that there are some very populous nations like Nigeria or Kenya that basically have incredibly low per capita representation on a map like this. But hey, that was old media. Thank goodness we've gotten to the internet. We can now cover these things very, very differently. Anyone who has access to a mobile phone can create their own content. We'll share it with everybody. And suddenly we find ourselves looking at a map like this, which is the Huffington Post. And so this is HuffPost, same period of time. This is after Huffington Post decided that it was going to make its massive international push, hire lots of international reporters, open a Paris news bureau, and if you start looking at the map of distribution, you start seeing that when we start moving into these user-generated and citizen-generated newspapers, you're possibly getting even less information coming from the developing world. There's a great paper that recently came out Uh, from uh, Kalev Letaro that gives a sense of this idea that we're still incredibly dependent on news systems from information from certain places. So here's what Litaru did. He started mapping where Twitter users are and probably did it better than anybody else had. And in this case the Twitter users are in white. So that white map of the world is the map of the Twitterverse. And for those of you who haven't spent a lot of time in the Twitterverse or at least the global Twitterverse There's an enormous Japanese Twitter. There's a massive Indonesian and Malaysian and Thai Twitter. You'll see the Philippines shows up really strongly. Brazil is enormously represented, as well as the sort of predictable Western Europe and the United States. But then he also did something very interesting. He put red on the map. And red, in this case, was all of Google News over some very long period of time. And anything that shows up predominantly in red, you can think of as a place that you're only going. to hear of through digital media if someone bothers writing a news story about it. And you'll see that where the red shows up is most of Africa, most of India, most of China, places where we're still hugely dependent on formal media to try to get any of this sort of information. So my point on all of this is that there's places that show up dark on both of those maps. There are places where we're simply not getting information at all. There are places where even coming from our best news sources, we consistently have blind spots as far as whether we get attention or not. That near as we can tell, as we start getting to the penetration of social media and the creation of digital media, some of those places still remain extremely underrepresented. One One way or another, this notion that somehow connectivity through data networks is going to give us connectivity of people and ideas is something that we really have to call into question. We really have to ask what's happening and when is it happening, rather than sort of assuming that this is something that inevitably comes with the technology. Now, it would be a great time in this talk to ask, why does this matter? My argument for why this matters is that because we are connected in many ways. At the end of the day, we're living on the same planet. Certain problems like global warming and climate change absolutely demand some sort of international response and solution. And if we can't have a conversation that involves the United States and India and China, and that actually has some sensitivity to everybody's perspectives in it, it's very, very unlikely that we can find a reasonable reaction to some of these long-term massive changes. We also know that there are problems that ride on top of these global networks that demand immediate, rapid response. At the end of the day, the solution to SARS turned out to be a computer network that the World Health Organization brought up to allow doctors in all of these countries to start confidentially sharing documents and case files. And once you got that network up, you suddenly had a massive drop-off in the number of new cases because people were sharing quarantines and best procedures, and so finding a way to actually connect at those moments where we desperately need to connect one another is one way to take advantage of the idea that these networks networks that right now connect us theoretically but not always practically connect us physically but don't always connect us in terms of our ideas or our concepts or our dialogues these networks can end up being incredibly dangerous they can be a source of infection a source of harm, a source of dependencies that we don't understand and unless we end up having the conversations that end up riding on top of them, we find ourselves in a point of vulnerability rather than that sort of point of opportunity. So most of what I've been working on is this question of how do we take advantage of this moment of really incomplete connection? This moment of sort of potential connection, where if we figured out a way to do it, we could start having a flow of ideas and a conversation that might involve people well beyond our own borders. And what I started looking at when I tried to figure this out was essentially saying I don't think this is a problem that's solved by technology. I think it's a problem where we have to get deep into the sociology. And the sociological tendency that we bump into again and again and again when we look at how people actually behave on top of these networks is homophily. Homophily is the tendency of birds of a feather to flock together. It's the basic sociological tendency of us to look for people who are similar to ourselves. We're incredibly good at doing this. Human beings have this perhaps innate gift of figuring out who is someone that we are self-similar to. If you put people in situations, they will find ways to sort themselves, often physically in rooms, to sort themselves by people who are of the same race, who are of the same gender, who are of similar socioeconomic levels. There are great experiments out there that will show that students walking into a computer lab will find a tendency to sit next to someone who has hair roughly the same length That if you have glasses, you have a stronger tendency to sit next to somebody else who has glasses, and then you interview people after the fact, and you sort of go, why did you sit where you sit? And the person always says the same thing. I thought that person would be friendly. We're all looking for our tribe, and we do this all throughout the physical world. It's one of the best documented tendencies in sociology, and what's really interesting is that as we've started building these computer networks, we've started building networks that reinforce homophily in almost exactly the same way. And so much of what explains how information actually flows on top of these global networks is explained by homophily. So when we think about how we're getting information, I'm going to propose that there's three basic paradigms that most of us end up following when we try to think about what we might know about the world. The oldest of these paradigms, the one that's most familiar to most of us, is this curation paradigm. We go to a resource like the New York Times or nowadays to Google News, and someone has told us these are the important things that we need to pay attention to. We've moved in many of the generations of people here to a search paradigm where suddenly we are the ones in charge we get to look at what we think is important and we're watching right now this emergence of a social paradigm and the social paradigm basically says if you don't know what you're looking for if you need help finding something you're going to find a way to rely on your friends, you're going to find a way to sort of rely on that social network. The curated paradigm is really powerful in many ways because curated media gives someone the ability to sort of say hey I know you don't think you care about this weird disease spreading in southern China that seems to come from people eating civet cat, but you know what? A lot of Chinese people get on airplanes. You might actually want to pay attention to this because it looks like something like 40% of the people who are getting this disease are dying within a week, so I just thought I'd let you know. But we also know that curated media has biases, (laughs) that there are parts of the world that we get a lot of information from, parts of the world that we get very little information from, and when you think about what explains these maps, one of the best ways to explain these maps is how similar do we think we are to the other people on these maps. It's a really interesting sort of question. What explains this? I think a lot of people in North America would say we've got a lot more in common with Western Europe than we do with Africa. And if you start thinking about that question of who do we know about, who do we identify with, who are in extended social networks, it goes a long way to explaining in many cases what these coverage patterns are. It's less obvious in U.S. media than it is in lots of other media. If you put up a map of the BBC over the same time period, what comes incredibly clear is the detritus of empire you can see every country that used to be part of the commonwealth because the assumption is that that's still on some level culturally Britain it's somehow connected and therefore the anglophone parts of Africa are actually part of the universe that we're going to pay attention to and not in Latin America so one way or another that question of who we're self-similar to ends up influencing what we pay attention to through curated media it has an enormous amount to do with what we pay attention to with search. Because we start moving into the realm of search, we start going from a realm in which information is given to us because someone said you should really pay attention to this. Some gatekeeper said this is important and that's not. You suddenly find yourself in the position where you get to know what you want. But we're not very good judges necessarily of what we need we can judge very, very clearly what I want to know. I really want to know uh, you know, whether the Green Bay Packers are going to win this weekend. Uh, I really would love to read as much possible content as I can about whether Clay Matthews' hamstring is any better. But that isn't necessarily what I need to know, and it certainly isn't going to get me out of a bubble of my own sort of narrow parochial... Interests. So search has sort of driven us down into this level where we suddenly have a responsibility for what we discover or don't discover, which means we can very much get trapped in our own preconceptions of what's important. We end up choosing to pay attention to what we already know about, but we don't do very well at finding out what we don't know that we might have needed to know. Search is incredibly powerful, but one of the things that people are finding is that it isn't very good at giving us the unexpected discovery. It's not very good at giving us serendipity. And so where people are going for this is essentially saying maybe we can move to a paradigm where suddenly I'll just rely on my friends. And so we see the emergence of this with Facebook search. We suddenly say, hey, I want to find a place to have a drink after a talk. I'm going to look at this and by the way, rather than just giving me everybody's results, let's just lean on my friends. Let's find out what my friends like. Now, there's a lot of reasons to be worried about this. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that the first time I saw this tool, it was one of the creepiest things that I'd ever seen, because it's trivial to create a query that basically says, you know, let me start finding ways to stalk people. But what I think is actually creepy about this is that it's very, very hard to create a query like this, which essentially says, actually, I don't need to know exactly what my friends know. I already know a great deal of what my friends know. How would I use a technology like this to get me out of the rut, to get me out of the information orbit that I'm already in, and to try to find some way to give me a sense of what other people are looking at, what other people are thinking about, what's a local maximum for another community? What does another community think is the best answer to this question? What's something that's great and unexpected that I'm very unlikely to find because I'm insulated by a bubble of people who look like me and think like me and who may not have access Access to other networks and other knowledge. The reason I'm interested in that in the long run is not that I'm interested in not dying from SARS, not that I'm ultimately interested in climate change, it's that I'm really interested in the power of cognitive diversity. So an amazing paper uh, that I actually think everybody should just go and read uh, is this paper by Ronald Burt. It's called Structural Holes and Good Ideas. It's a nice example of the fact that to do certain studies, you kind of have to have the perfect data set. So Burt manages to get himself hired as basically the VP of corporate strategy for Raytheon giant defense contractor at a moment where Raytheon is restructuring itself. So Raytheon uh, has had great success with the Patriot missile. You may have had one. You may have been bombed by one. They're incredibly successful. They suddenly use all of that money to go buy a bunch of other defense contractors and they've got this giant corporation. They do not understand why they can't run it. And So they hire Bert and Bert comes in and he does this experiment where he takes one department. He takes the purchasing department And he sends a survey to everybody in the purchasing department. He wants to find out who you are, who you talk to, who you interact with. But then he wants to know your ideas for making the company better. And he takes these ideas and he puts them in front of the senior management of the company. They don't look at who the idea is from. They just look at the ideas and they rank them for quality. And they figure out where in this giant, vast company the good ideas have come from. And they find a couple of things. They find that the people who have good ideas are actually the best paid in the organization. They find that they're usually in the middle of their careers. They're not people who just got there or who've been there for a long time. It's something about being there long enough to actually understand the system, but not so long that you burn out. But the main thing that they find is that the people who have the best ideas are bridges within networks. They are people who are not locked in the same office all the time. They are people who are interacting with other nodes of the corporation. It's someone who works in the Delhi office but is spending a ton of time on the phone to Shanghai and periodically goes back to New York. It's inversely correlated to people who spend time talking to the same eight people every single day. People who are bridges in what he calls structural holes in the network are at high risk of having good ideas, to quote him from the paper. And the reason he thinks this is true is he basically destroys our sense of where good ideas come from. Bert is extremely suspicious of genius. Bert basically says most creativity is an import-export business. It's taking an idea that seems completely routine in another context and bring it into your context. And so if you are in a space where you have access to lots of different ways of looking at the world... if you can have access to a diverse cognitive palette, a different set of ways to solve problems, you end up with a certain set of superpowers. You can suddenly start drawing these influences and bringing them into play. And we see this quite literally in some cases. Shortly before Picasso starts making experiments in cubism, he starts collecting African masks, mostly from the Fon people in Benin. And you see something that's really common in Fon masks, which is basically Anything that's convex turns to concave and vice versa. Basically, in the mask you sort of reverse the way that curves normally show up. And then you watch Picasso sort of grab it, move it over, slide it in. Presto, you have artistic genius. This is not denying that Picasso was an incredible artist, but it is suggesting that sometimes taking that idea out of context and finding a way to slide it in is a profound way to look for creative accomplishment of one fashion another. The reason I wrote this book at the end of the day was because I feel like we're building our networks without thinking very much about the implications of them. I think we've built a generation of social media tools really based around the assumption that what we want to do is make you happy and make you comfortable because we want to sell you ads. And so the last thing we want to do is challenge you. The last thing we want to do is confront you. We want to keep you clicking the next page. And it turns out that one of the best ways of having you click the next page is to surround you with exactly what you you want to surround you with people you've already known, perhaps the people you've known from childhood you've, who you've reconnected with on Facebook. But the trick about this is there's nothing inevitable about this these tools that we're building these tools that are really powerful at reinforcing these homophilus ties that don't do a ton in trying to figure out how to get us to push in diverse different directions they're not inevitable they are the decisions that we made whether we were conscious of making them or not and, and I quite literally mean we before I went and started pretending to do academic stuff and waving my hands in front of rooms like this I built so social media companies. I built a company that was a precursor to MySpace, which was a precursor to Facebook. And we were exactly working on this paradigm. We wanted you to find exactly who you interacted with. And the last thing we wanted to do is challenge you and provoke you towards diversity. But we need to think about this idea that when we bring these new technologies into play, we don't necessarily have to accept the politics, the values behind them. Right now, this is the technology everyone's talking about. I've been keeping a mental tally of how many of my colleagues at the Media Lab are wearing Google Glass. And there's a giant conversation happening about does Google Glass finally mean it's the end of privacy? We're under surveillance all the time. There is no inevitability that someone sticks a camera on glasses and we suddenly have to get rid of privacy. We can decide as individuals and in a society that this is not an acceptable thing to do. My friend Yad Chip Chase actually advocates walking around with a bucket of cold water and simply pouring it on people wearing Google Glass as a way of reinforcing this norm that it's not generally very polite to point a camera in someone's face when you can't tell what they're doing with it. This is not me encouraging anyone to assault anyone wearing Google Glass, but it is suggesting that there's nothing inevitable. About a change in values coming from technology. If we decide that one way or another these tools that we're building aren't giving us a global view that we want might in fact be reinforcing parochialism in one fashion or another we have the ability to go and try to make these changes. So that's what I've been trying to do for a while and I'm really bad at it. And even working really, really hard, I've had very, very little success. One of the projects I am best known for is this group, Global Voices, and there's awesome things about it. If you decided you wanted to spend time on our website and go read about what people are blogging about in Cameroon, or what's going on with protests in Sudan, there's amazing information. We'll introduce you to all these people who are on the ground writing what's going on there. But statistically speaking, you are not going to go there. Because we've been working on this for nine years and in a really good month we might get half a million visitors. And one way or another it turns out that these patterns of behavior are really, really difficult to change. Simply going after supply and essentially saying, hey, it would be good for you to have more international news. Here's some international news. That turns out not to be enough. So where I've started going on this is trying to think about slightly different devices. So I'm trying to lose weight I carry one of these little things it's a Fitbit, it measures how many steps I take in a day it tells me I have 7,800 I need to walk at least another mile before I can safely go to bed this evening that's fortunate, I'm sure I have at least another mile in me one way or another this is a device that gives me insight into my behavior so I can make changes about it And I think the way that we would get to tools and media that help increase cognitive diversity is if we build media self-monitoring tools in one fashion or another. I basically want a Fitbit for the mind. I really want the way to be able to look at what I'm paying attention to, where I'm getting new ideas, where I'm getting influences, and to ask the question, am I getting this sort of breadth and diversity that I would like to be getting? And the great fun about being here is that you can say these things to your students and your brilliant students will sort of take an idea and transform it and push it in a slightly different direction. But you start seeing things that start making a lot of sense. So this is a tool called Follow Bias and it comes from my doctoral student Nathan Matias working with uh, Sarah Slavitz and they've done a gorgeous job of building a Fitbit along one particular variable for Twitter. So what they basically said is, a lot of guys on Twitter, fewer women. How many women do you follow? How many men do you follow? They turn it into a statistical problem. They have a tool now called the Open Gender Toolkit that looks at a name, makes an educated guess on the first name whether this person is male or female. So this is actually my data uh, from a while ago. You can get your own. You and go to followbias.com. It'll tell you to keep it quiet. Don't tweet out that link, but do go check it out. You can log in with Twitter. It will look at your Twitter list, and it will try to guess how many men and how many women you're looking at. And so the first time I put this up, I put up a manufactured slide. I made one because I was pretty embarrassed about the fact that I follow 56% men. And Nathan said to me, no, that's bullshit. If you're going to show off my work, you actually have to show your data <laughs> (laughs) associated with it, so I'm showing my actual data. I I update it every so often. When you have this image, it actually changes how you use Twitter. I get 40 people who follow me every day and I have to sort of decide, am I going to follow them back or not? And I have to say, at this point, gender plays a strong role in whether I follow someone back or not. I'm sort of using it as my tool to audition more women to find some way of sort of diversifying this ratio. Shortly after this, I went through and started culling dull men from my Twitter feed essentially feeling like, you know, I was probably listening to too many guys who I'd like followed back for social reasons. Nowhere in this does this say by the way, your ideal ratio is 50-50. Nowhere does this say you know, the median uh, percent male followers. None of that. It's simply a way of making visible to you a bias in your behavior that you may not be aware of. So if you want to find a way to address it, you can sort of go after it. We're trying to do the same thing right now, sort of looking at newspapers and news organizations. So this is a project that uh, Catherine D'Ignazio has been working on. Catherine's walking around with a baby somewhere. Tell her that I talked about her work. This is a way of starting to make clear some of those biases that happen in existing media systems. And we did this for starters with the Boston Globe because they're incredibly cooperative and because they're very important. We really wanted to know how the Boston Globe saw Boston. And when you go to this tool, which Which is also available, and this one you can tweet. It's globe.mediameter.org. You'll get a map of Boston if you switch into the per capita view, which for me is the really interesting one. You start getting a sense of how stories per capita get concentrated in the Boston area. Unsurprisingly, Boston itself, lots and lots of news. Uh, Center of government, center of business, center of politics, so on and so forth. What gets weird is out here, where you have a lot of fairly sparse and extremely wealthy towns that get a whole lot of media coverage. Uh, And we've looked at a couple of different things on this. We've tried to figure it out just in terms of pure economics. It explains some of the variance, but not all of it. Uh, When we showed it to people at other newspapers, they said that's where the editors live. I think that's actually quite possible. But one way or another, those areas get a lot more coverage than you would expect. Then there's areas that get less coverage than you would expect. And if you know Boston well, you know that this is an area that has a lot of people of color. You know that this is an area that tends to be economically disadvantaged. And in terms of stories per capita, those areas end up sparser. And in building these sorts of tools to try to figure out how to examine what's going on, we've been now going a step further and essentially saying can we dig in and look at what conversations are happening in those places. So here's what's coming out of Mattapan. Um, depends a majority community of color, and you start looking at the word cloud coming out of it, and pretty quickly you'll see killings, juror, jurors, judge. You end up with testimony up there fairly high. The other thing you end up getting, by the way, is game rebound Basically, you watch over time, and what you start finding is you have two intersecting circles. They intersect around the word shooting. You basically have murder and basketball. And that's what the Boston Globe is currently reporting from Mattapan. And that raises some very interesting questions about what should the Boston Globe be reporting from Mattapan? How would Mattapan look at something like this and sort of say, that's not actually a fair portrait of what's going on in our community? What does it do for you if you know that your impression? of Mattapan through the Boston Globe is going to give you those two lenses and perhaps no other lenses. How does that change? Is there a way to then go and sort of say can I get other information coming out of Mattapan? So so this is sort of a question that informs a lot of our work and and not all of it is is quite as dark as this. I'll actually stop by looking at a project that I hope is maybe slightly more optimistic than than that rather dark example, which is one uh, that we just launched this week And it's a project called What We Watch. And What We Watch is not going to fit on that screen. Give me half a sec. I'd love to actually show this to you correctly. And I really will shut up after this one and we'll have a conversation. So what happened with what we watched was <clears throat> we got interested in this question of what videos were most popular and trending on YouTube, and YouTube actually makes this information available. You can go to the YouTube Trends dashboard; they will show you the top ten trending videos in a given country on a given day. And so we scraped that data uh, for the folks who are in my CMS 950 class. This is a great example of what scraping will do for you. You start generating these fun data sets based on that information, then we decided to visualize it in a couple of different ways. It's nice to be able to go into a country and say what's popular in that country. It turns out that for Nigeria... There's a certain number of videos that come up again and again. And there's a a setting on this tool when it's at the proper resolution where it's not, where you can see unique videos, videos that are mostly just popular in Nigeria, not popular anywhere else. But you'll also see that there are these what we might call implicit links. Nigeria on this map shares a huge amount in common with its little sister to the left, Ghana, shares a little bit less with Kenya, South Africa, and that's because they have lots of videos in common. And so if we go over and sort of click on that, we find that Nigeria and Ghana have a certain number of videos in common, including this lovely little track by P Square, which I'm quite fond of, but it's addictive, so I'm not going to play it. It's an earworm, which shows up pretty much in sub-Saharan Africa, absolutely Absolutely nowhere else. And so you can start getting a sense for how culture ends up spreading on these global networks. And what we're finding on this is this very complicated picture. That sort of messy set of maps that show the world is very connected in some ways and unconnected in other ways ends up being a really good way to explain what's going on with global culture. Katy Perry shows up everywhere on the map. Right? She trends every single place. You can find in every Every corner of the world. There's other videos that absolutely do not escape their own cultural orbit. They show up in Russia and Ukraine, nowhere else. There's ones that make it in a region, they make it no further. What's interesting, and at the end of the day, one of the things that gives me the most hope on all of this, is that it turns out that cultural mobility and personal mobility have a lot to do with one another. You look at this map, you look at India as one, you look at United Arab Emirates as another. This is an enormous labor corridor from India to UAE, they actually have quite a bit in common. And when you start looking at videos that are in common in these places, you end up with a video that, for me, is sort of wonderful and poetic. This is a video that ends up popular in an enormous chunk of the world. It's popular in India, it's popular in Chile, it's popular in Italy, and at the end of the day, it's probably not a video that was intended for any of those people. It's a Google Hangout. Hangouts ad suggesting that when this young woman moves to the city, Google Hangouts will be the way that she ends up staying in touch with her family. And as we watch through this, you're going to find out that there's a boyfriend in the background, eventually there's a wedding ring, and when they finally announce that they're getting married, that's finally when her father gets in the airplane and goes there. And near as I can tell, this is pretty much aimed at you and me. It's aimed mostly at, you know, highly mobile urban professionals showing up in a different city to go to a school and where it actually turns out to be popular is in parts of the world where you might say, why is this popular in Nigeria? Well, it's popular with those millions of Nigerians who've gotten on an airplane and then this becomes part of that culture that ends up sort of connecting them together crazy talk all over the map. I know. Insanity. Like I said, working on ideas for about five years, that's where it all ends up. Um, We're working on a lot of this stuff actively over at Center for Civic Media. One of the new things that we're trying to work on is can we start building tools that have cognitive diversity actually baked into them? How would we take something like Twitter and make the decision to say how do we explicitly give you something different, work that we're going to be doing over the next couple of years. All stuff that I'm talking about in this, hope if any of this is interesting to you, you might give the book a read. Thank you for your patience and tolerance. Ian and I are now going to sit in front and answer some questions. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was
0: amazing. Wonderful. Now, yeah, I'm not going to dominate all the Q&A. I will take one question. I will... Take my moderator. Uh, please do. I guess. Take uh, as much prerogative as you want. Uh, and uh, and probably dive in later. But I also I'll open the discussion as well. Uh, there are some seats up here too. If people want to squeeze in, uh, please feel free. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, really great. And uh, really enjoyed your book. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk. So here's one of the questions. Well, i I've, so let me do. I have two questions. One is, can you talk a little bit about, more about how we know diversity when we see it? You know that I can see certainly I'm probably following more men than women you know nope. and, and that's an easy one but beyond that right nope. how how can we how do you define that diversity nope. how do we nope. think about it maybe it's partly how Robert Burke does it but also I guess how you're thinking about it
1: So one of the first things to say is that cognitive diversity doesn't necessarily track demographic diversity okay Um, if I go to the same high school, university, and management training program as a Rwandan woman, we're likely to have a lot of the same cognitive toolkits that we bring to the same problems. And so in terms of getting that sense of different views, different perspectives, that might not be a particularly good way to sort of go after diversity. Cognitive diversity seems to be looking at people who are solving problems in very different ways. So um, when you have... Uh, the Brits going after the Enigma cipher. The classic story is that you sort of end up with people working together in a room, you have crossword puzzle experts, you have classicists, you have mathematicians, you have opera singers, you have this sort of amazingly diverse set of people working at Bletchley Park, although for the most part you have a whole lot of Brits educated at the same schools, just with very different skill sets sort of on this. So there's a lot of different Degrees in which this can sort of come into play. What I'm asking people to sort of think about is. Can you look at the network of people who are feeding you information and feeding you insight and ask questions about whether you're getting differences of opinion, differences of politics, differences of perspective? It turns out that difference is an incredibly hard subject to have a conversation about, right? So some of the best theorists in this space trip up almost immediately when they start talking about ideological diversity because they're talking about the US and they're talking about two political parties right? So Cass Sunstein who I rely on very heavily in this book to talk about echo chambers and what sort of happens with ideas getting polarized by having repetition treats this almost exclusively in terms of left right. Eli Pariser writes a really thoughtful book about how algorithms may be filtering us into as he calls filter bubbles of people who think the same way, but he examines it almost exclusively in terms of left-right. The major addition that I sort of make to the two in this is, I make the case that the filter bubble is three-dimensional, that, that the real bubble on most of this is us-them. And it's basically that we are so much more likely to be getting U.S. perspectives, which, by the way, carry that left-right duality to it, than we are to be getting a Nigerian perspective on the news, a Kenyan perspective on the news, a Cambodian perspective on the news. So it, it's not as simple as check this boxes. It's not as simple as count the faces, count the men, count the women. These experiments, in many ways, we know are sort of simplistic, but it's a way of start putting mirrors up instead of saying, how is this working in your own behavior? And one of the reasons we're trying to be very careful about not going, bad, bad, Ian, 70% men, bad, is, is that we want to make it possible for people to sort of ask the question, where are you concentrated? Where are you getting diversity? Where are you getting new ideas? Where would you look to get new ideas? And then as we start moving into recommender systems, we're interested in sort of doing the same thing. You know, do you want the bars liked by, you know, the other people in your social circle? Do you want the bars uh, liked by people who are cooler than you are? Do you <laughs> want the bars liked by visiting Nigerians in Boston? You know, what what are those community maxima so that you can try to figure out what are the areas where you would need to, to sort of tweak those levers and, and, and look for more cognitive diversity. Really,
0: really interesting. Alright, and so my second question and then we'll open it up uh, is the uh, question of ideas into action. Uh, that I like the idea, and I, I will try this, <laughs> and I like to think I do a little bit of it but certainly it's raised a lot more possibilities for me to think about but I can imagine wanting to read more about Africa. And you give this nice example of Joey uh, Ito, you know, wanting to, going to Africa, wants to know about Africa. But he says it's kind of a caring problem, you know, how I can yeah. read about all of these places and, and learn what's happening among the Uyghurs in Mongolia and figure out what's happening in Nigeria and, and know a little, a little yeah. bit about a lot of places um, and probably get some new ideas and some new perspectives. On the other hand, I feel like to really change the world, right, to have some kind of impact where you're saying, I want to make something better uh, around somehow, won't that require me to focus more on, on a local thing and no. actually uh, you know, weed out, or, 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 or if not push out the ideas, at least <laughs> there's how to balance that urge for diversity versus the kind of focus and the kind no. of networking, and maybe even working with homophilous groups that are saying, you know, it, it's time to work out jobs, it's time to make education free, it's time to yeah. work on health care problems, and, and that I can get ideas from everywhere, but at some level I've got to right. choose a few things and focus on them. How are you thinking about that problem?
1: Well, so there, there's like five things that I want to pursue in that question, so okay. I'm going to try to figure out how I pursue as many of them as I possibly can on all of that. Um, defenses for homophily almost always come up in terms of efficiency. So, you know, when we have the debate in the U.S. military for why we can't have uh, out gays and lesbians in units, it's because it's going to increase the diversity in a way that makes people uncomfortable. The reason we make the argument for single sex, you know, special forces, you know, active combat units is that it's going to reduce these sorts of, of tensions. And, you know, you look at certain tasks. If you need a whole lot of people to do the same thing together at the same time, go for homophily. Go for Family groups, like go for people who've got a whole lot in common. You're a whole lot more likely to get people to march the same way at the same time. Diversity is really good for solving certain types of problems. Homophily is really good for for other sorts of types of problems. Going to this question of sort of how you change the world, I think there's a couple of places that I would sort of pull this apart. Joey tackles this the way that most people tackle this when they suddenly go, wow, the world's really big. I should know some more about the rest of it. Let me go out and find some stuff. And then very quickly you sort of go, wow, there's a lot I could be reading and there's a lot that I'm really dumb about. And at the end of the day, I don't really give a damn about any of this because I actually don't know anybody in Cambodia, so why would I care about this? And so part of where Global Voices tried to go after this was to say, here's Taram Bun. He's our correspondent from Cambodia. He's going to tell you what's going on in his life. You'll get to know him. You'll have a connection with him. Maybe that'll solve the caring problem for you. It turns out that that problem of suddenly going from I know what I like and I like what I know to I have a whole world that I can't pay attention to probably isn't solved in that in in that big jump. It's probably solved in sort of micro steps. And so the two bits of advice that I sort of give to people who are actually trying to do what Joey was trying to do in that example, the first is to go after a single place. So Clay Shirky, when he talks about these ideas, stands up and says, I've heard Ethan's argument, I'm trying to pay more attention to the world, and I now pay attention to Bahrain. And so, you know, one really weird, really complicated, really interesting country, and that's been a way that he's been able to start expanding the orbit and it actually gives another lens onto politics. Another is to lean directly onto your work. You get a lot out of your interactions in Japan, but you don't try to approach Japan as a giant complicated uh, culture. You go in through an angle of culture, and particularly culture that you love and care about. So you're really interested in hip-hop, so you go into Japan through hip-hop. And that ends up being a way that people end up caring and interacting in places that they don't otherwise have connections if you love heavy metal you should be listening to Botswana and heavy metal you know and there's fantastic Botswana and heavy metal it's amazing it sort of plays with all of this cowboy mystique and the cattle culture and it's really interesting but there are all these ways sort of into diversity coming from this Where does this take us on the question of change? The conventional wisdom on social change is that you want to change close to home. But you want to change close to home because it's what you know and what you care about. It may not be the place where you might be able to have the most impact or the most effect. We may be at a moment in American politics where changing American politics in particular is at a, a particularly difficult time. You might actually be able to have an impact more on sort of these global and connected systems through practices of free trade, practices of thinking about environmental impacts and all of this. And so, you know, for me the answer is follow the interests, follow the passion, and then meet the real people. This absolutely doesn't work when you have people as activists essentially saying, what I care about is Kenya, and now I'm going to go work on Kenya and have no connections to Kenyans. If that interest somehow becomes the connection to people, and then from there that becomes the ability to work for change, to me that strikes me as one of the really interesting possibilities of a connected world. Nice. nice.
0: Alright, great. Well, i got more, but let's, let's open it up first. And uh, Yeah, please, let's start here. And Yeah, and please introduce yourself, Maria. Um, I'm
2: Maria, so I'm a postdoc, I'm a postdoc, I'm the an Anthropology Program. I'm um, interested in this in this question, I work with uh, political marketing in Colombia and America with political marketing that was introduced to Colombia and has its postdocs, but... Um,
0: I and maybe turn a little bit so the people in the back can hear uh, okay. you too, right? Okay. Yeah. I was. <laughs> thank
2: you. Yep, <laughs> I was wondering about this idea of just like connecting people through interests and just like how
0: things... like I, I'm gonna give you
2: an example of myself. I'm Colombian, right? You can say like when I came to the U.S., I, w- I thought of myself as having a an identity, and I became Hispanic. I wasn't prepared for that. Right. That like, just like that way, just like pushed me into a category. I but like, inhabiting that category, I was able to connect with connect with people that I would normally never connect back home, right? Yeah. But that sense of dislocation was where I had like the encounter with uh, this otherness. I'm wondering if like media tools like tools within media can replicate that sense of dislocation. Yeah. If it's possible. Because yep. we're talking about conversations about issues like that. Very visceral
1: encounter with other identities. I don't know if it's possible. So I, I think that question of how we find ourselves in a situation where we're confronting other and then we start looking for oh who's my tribe now is a really interesting question right so you had already taken the big step of you left Colombia you came to the US you knew you were going to be in a situation where you were going to be in, in a very small group of, of the Colombians in the United States at this point, you then found a tribe. You didn't really mean to but you found a group of people who whether it is commonality or whether it's implied commonality, you know suddenly have a cultural identity around it and in some ways that ends up being a very arbitrary connection and it turns out that arbitrary connections are incredibly powerful um, I do a lot of work in Ghana, in West Africa one of the aspects, of getting culture is that everyone in Ghana knows the day of the week that they were born on Uh, I happen to know that January 4th, 1973 was a Thursday and I know that my son was born on a Saturday and the reason that I know this is that nicknames are all based on day of the week that you were born on so because I'm Thursday born, I'm Yao because my son is Saturday born he's he's Kwame if he was Sunday born he would be Kwesi and so we can sort of go through this and this comes up sort of again and again, you go into a church service, and suddenly it's time for all the Thursday-borns to stand up and go to the altar together, which ends up being the sort of opportunity to interact with all the other people who are Thursday-born. There is nothing more arbitrary than the day of the week that you were born on. There is no common ground based on the fact that we were both born on a Thursday. But we've been forced to mix in this very, very interesting way. And when you see this arbitrary connection sort of show up in different places, it often turns out to be a really nice way of sort of punctuating people's bubbles and getting them to make a different connection. My favorite example of this I started writing this book while my wife was pregnant and she joined a birth month group on LiveJournal. So this is a pretty common thing to do, to sort of find a cohort of women who are pregnant at the same time, who are going to give birth at the same time. And so again, totally arbitrary. The only thing they have in common is that the due date is in November. So you get a group that's got, you know, secular university professors, you've got evangelical Christians, my wife happens to be a rabbi, so you have conversations happening between evangelical Christians from Alabama and a rabbi from Western Massachusetts that just aren't going to happen without that sort of arbitrary connection. So I think somehow finding a way to be forced out of that comfortable spot and forced into mixing, for me, I think, is one of these really powerful and profound things. And one of the changes that I tried to follow in this book is kind of a change that, I, that I'm that i mourning, right? So I've been on the Internet since nineteen 1989, And when you got on the internet in 1989, it was probably because you had really weird and esoteric interests, and you wanted to find those other people with weird and esoteric interests. And so I got on the internet in 1989 to learn about West African music, and I would run into other people from all over the world who had the common interest of West African music. And if you were a photographer, you were on rec.photo, and you would find other people who had that interest, because that interest ended up crossing a lot of those demographic and geographic lines. We've completely transformed. When you sign on to Facebook, the first thing it says is, where did you go to college? Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to elementary school? Where have you worked? How do I reinforce all these existing networks of people who I know? Not what are you interested in, not what do you want to learn, what do you want to explore? So having more of that arbitrary connection, having more of that experience of being sort of drawn out of the orbit that we're normally in, I I actually think would be Cognitively, an incredibly good thing to have happen.
0: Uh, yeah, go ahead. Chris. Uh, so, Please introduce yourself too, and lean Peter. so people can hear. Right, uh, I, I, we're trying without the microphone, but it, we'll see how that
1: goes. Uh, Chris Peterson, um, researcher at Sub-Symedia. Um So you, you frame the kind of the crux of your presentation in the icebergs and Fukushima um, and the international responses um, to, to hard questions. But one of the things that you also talk about is—I um, mean—it's hard for me to have a conversation on Facebook with my conservative uncle who lives in Foxborough because even though we live ten miles away, we're in completely different epistemic universes. Yeah. Whereas someone who's across the world and who's in civic, we're speaking with a conceptually converted. So, in the course of your work, how have you thought about balancing diversity with intelligibility, where people are different enough to have different ideas but similar enough to understand each other's language, such that some transformative progress can be made? Yeah. Um, great question. Thank you. Um, I've been beating up Facebook, uh, and so let me now praise Facebook, and, and let me do it at, um, through the words of my friend Judith Doneth, who has heard me sort of make this argument and essentially say, this is crazy. We've moved from these interest-based networks to these, these you know, personally connected networks. It's the rise of homophily. And she responds and sort of goes, well, no. Not at all. Like, I'm connected to my high school on Facebook, which means I know someone who's a gas station attendant, and I'm a researcher at Harvard. And if I were just going in my interest networks, I would only know people with doctorates, and instead I'm in touch with people who I have the geographic tendency with. So I I think on all of these things, it gets to that question of what are those multiple diversities. And there's different ways to have that sort of diversity. And you may be right in that it may be harder to get left-right political diversity based on where you are in a network right now than it is to get geographic diversity based on the network where you are in one fashion or another. I do think the approach to solving these problems probably comes from going back to someone like Ronald Burt, And what Burt is talking about is people who are bridge nodes within these networks. And one of the things that I spend a whole chapter on in the book is the notion of the bridge figure. And for me, the bridge figure... Is someone who conceptually has feet in two different camps. So it's a special subset of people who are bicultural in one fashion or another. It's people who are not just bicultural but who embrace that role of sort of explaining one culture to another. It's possibly bicultural simply by being dislocated. You know, our friend may be here from Colombia and sort of go, America? No, thank you. Bullshit. Not interested. And essentially saying, I'm a Colombian stuck in the U.S. Or the response might be, I really want to build a bridge between the U.S. and Colombia. Let me try to figure out how to explain Colombia, what we're thinking about, our interests, our perspectives, language you're going to understand as an American, which I'm now learning to do by being here for a while. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in long term is trying to figure out how we identify Bridges. how we identify bridge figures, how we identify them in network analysis, and then how we sort of empower them in one fashion or another. Global Voices is pretty much built exclusively from bridges. It's really, really hard to write about blogs in Ghana for an international audience unless you both have really strong Ghanaian ties and really strong international ties. And so you end up with Ghanaians who've lived and studied abroad or Americans who've lived and worked in Ghana who act as those bridges in one fashion or another. Yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out can we start systemically identifying these people if I wanted to start learning more about Colombia on Twitter it would be really interesting if I could find someone in a network who's well tied into networks that I already understand or interact with and well tied into conversations in Colombia and it's possible that person is going to do some of the cultural translating as well as maybe the linguistic translating that I might need to get there But one of the big things that I end up sort of talking about in the book are these many steps that you would need to have that sort of ability to have ideas flow across these borders. And I end up making the case that it's the combination of literal translation, linguistic translation, cultural bridging, and then sort of going after these discovery systems so that we end up encountering these people. You're in a situation where, by virtue of the fact that he's in your family and he's down in Foxborough, you don't have the discovery system problem. You don't have the translation problem because you can probably literally understand what he's saying. You do have the bridge problem. And what you probably need is to find someone less crazy than your uncle who is sympathetic to his worldview and can explain where he's coming from to you in a way that has that. And my guess is that somewhere in your family structure you may actually have someone who's sort of serving that role. I tend to to find that there's crazy uncles in almost every family and someone who ends up sort of being that translator in one fashion or another. But that question of bridge seems to be, you know, the, the, the way to go after that question.
2: Yeah,
0: please, in the back. Near you. Yes, sir. Okay, great. Um, I'm coordinating
2: this post at UC Irvine, visiting this week. Um, uh, as somebody who has previously been a computer scientist and a feminist, I often witness various kinds of uh, boundary-crossing discussions online that are, shall we say, less than pleasant. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of vitriol, especially directed at feminists that I've seen, so it's directed at me on occasion. And so I wonder how you would... how I mean, in a way, this is kind of what you're talking about, but it's a very dark side of what you're talking yeah. about, right? It's crossing the boundaries, yep. but it's bringing out all sorts of hate as yep. a result. Um, I don't know. How, what would you say to address that? How do you make people yep. to bridge
1: rather than right bridge. well so so i i think part of what's going on and i'm following some of the conversations that you're following are um, people sort of dropping in uninvited into communities throwing bombs and leaving right and 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 so the possibility of these highly interconnected communities right is is both inspiration and infection right you can you can have the sort of positive diversity where you're saying hey let me get the idea let me get the perspective from over there but you only get it if you're approaching from the perspective of saying i want those ideas i want the positive interaction if what you're looking to do is provoke anger provoke the anger, Response that connection makes it even more likely that you can try to figure out how to have those conflicts. Um, and you know, this is not new behavior, but it's gone in you know very, very different directions once we've started moving into the internet. So, w- one of the things that I end up spending a bunch of time on in the first chapter of the book is the Innocence of Muslims video and trying to look at this idea of having interconnection from video as a way to basically troll people. So you have Sam Basile make this very provocative film hoping to piss off American Muslims, and then actually finds out a way to actually really inflame different pockets of populations internationally once it's pulled out of context, once it gets dubbed into Arabic, once no one actually knows the backstory, once people think that it's an official US government propaganda film slagging Muhammad. And it's that connection that suddenly puts us in a, in a position of you know potentially a consulate burning in, in Benghazi, although we don't actually think that's why that consulate burned. So there's no doubt that proximity and connection can absolutely have this dark side. And I think the way that a lot of us respond to the dark side is to sort of go, eh, maybe connection's overrated. Like, this is actually a much more comfortable conversation when I'm sort of you know, talking with people who do have the common ground and the common values so that I'm not feeling attacked. I would probably respond in this case in two ways. I would sort of say, I'm not making the argument that every community needs to connect. And it's probably really important to have communities where we can talk in a group that feels safe, in a group that feels comfortable, where we have certain assumptions. I think if we're looking at this point for support as feminists in a moment where people are putting forward the programmer ethos, you know, it probably is really important for women in tech to be able to talk only as women and in tech. And, you know, even have well-meaning feminist guys stay out of that conversation at the moment. But there's also times where we want to try to figure out how we bridge and how we bridge in good faith. And so I think the response to bridging in bad faith is to sort of say we're going to have communities where it's okay not to bridge because we need the support, we need to have the conversation, we need to figure out how we want to react. And then the hope is to figure out is there a way to actually bridge in good faith to sort of come out and actually have that conversation at that point, but I I, I totally want to acknowledge the dark side behind all of this, And, and I think when we talk to some of the people who are the most interesting critics of sort of the spread of ideas online, they're all dark side all the time. And, and I think I probably err in this book on, on being too much of how would we fix it, how would we go on the bright side. But I want to absolutely acknowledge that the, the the dark side of connection is a reality within this.
3: Is there a quick question in the back? Yes, yeah, please. Um, hi, my name is Megan Jen. I'm a postdoc at Microsoft Research. Um, so I have two questions. One, I'm really interested in this question of mobility and whether you're talking about... Um, these cosmopolitans being people who are physically moving around a lot between communities, or are you talking about people who are sitting on a desktop? Um, and, and and yeah, I'm interested yep. in sort of hearing that fleshed out a bit more, um, particularly because when I think of the the sort of mobility, physical mobility people and global groups are, at least in the US that you might like, come in contact with, on one hand you have migrant workers who yep. you know make these incredible journeys very consistently, and on the other hand you have um, sort of like these cosmopolitan yep. cultural elite types who also make these sort of obvious like journeys crossing spaces. Um, but clearly have totally different sure. sort of agency sure. um, particularly within the sort of Absolutely. So I'm interested yep. in that sort of question about um, and then the second one is one that I'm sure you've had to answer before, but i yep. anyway. um, So people, you know, when the telegraph came out, people had the same hopes and dreams yep. that this telegraph would be the love machine, not the war machine. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and and those didn't quite come to pass. And um, I'm curious about what about this digital cosmopolitan is is different, uh, yep. and, and why why our hopes might be different.
1: So, so, so let let's start with the telegraph question and work back to the cosmopolitanism question. Um, I I I talk about exactly those stories. I talk about the telegraph. I, I talk about wireless. Uh, I talk about the airplane. The airplane actually has some of the best um, uh, utopian rhetoric around it. Um, and in many ways, it, it, I I hope I really hope that I wrote an anti-utopian book because what the book actually looks at is a lot of this 90s rhetoric around we're going to get the internet and therefore we are magically going to get connection. And then the first half of the book basically says, no, not so much. Like, let me show you across the board that there is very little connection, there's very little flow of ideas. And then the second half sort of goes on and says, but if you wanted to get it, here's the hard work you would need to do to get it. So where I go after the telegraph, the airplane, et cetera, et cetera, is to say that we have these very naive conversations about new technologies. The cycle is almost always the same. A new technology comes out and people say, this is great, it's going to change the world, it's going to change education, it's going to change market, it's going to change politics. And then there's a response that comes back and says, no, it's not. That's bullshit. That's crazy. It's not going to change anything. And what you really want to get to is actually a slightly more mature conversation which essentially says, it's not necessarily going to have those changes, but there's embedded value Values within the technology if we err and make visible those values and particularly if we try to shape tools in particular ways maybe we have a better chance of what we want out of it. So I don't think the internet is particularly magical around this. I think it's probably in some ways less magical than the container ship. Um, I think the fact that you, know, you can ship water around the world or that I, you know, I can get palm oil from West Africa at you know, an arbitrarily low cost I actually think in many ways that's probably more transformational in terms of interconnection. But what I really wanted to go after was the idea that these technologies are so mutable we change them so quickly. Twitter's five years old. You know, Facebook's you know, eight or nine years old. You know, The whole notion of a consumer internet is about 20 years old. That if you wanted to start and have it work differently, you can change very, very quickly. So that question of, I don't like how the airplane connects us or disconnects us, you have to do a lot of work in aeronautics to get that to work <coughs> differently. I don't like how Twitter connects us or disconnects us. I might be able to put together an experiment now and try to see whether another way of it playing out works differently. On the cosmopolitans piece of it, the the trick about taking a book which I I just went through the process of reading to record and it's 11 hours long and sort of trying to get the main ideas out of it in under an hour is that you're going to blow some of the key bits of it. But let me start by how I'm defining cosmopolitanism I'm leaning on Kwame Appiah who's written a couple of very good books on cosmopolitanism and he offers a really simple but difficult to live to definition which is Appiah basically says there's more than one legitimate way to live in the world and that cosmopolitans acknowledge this and that they also acknowledge that we might have responsibilities and obligations to people who live in the world a different way so by cosmopolitans, I don't necessarily mean the Toomey toting million miler. I mean any number of people who are looking for ideas, inspiration, connection through culture, through interaction through any number of different ways with other cultures and other ways of looking and being. So absolutely, let me thoroughly acknowledge that there's very different ways of trying to be physical cosmopolitans, and I think there's probably very, very different ways of being digital cosmopolitans. Once I move in the book to trying to analyze what's going on in media, what becomes very clear is that what we might call the low-road cosmopolitanism, the cosmopolitanism of, of my mig- labor, is a whole lot more visible than that high road, million-miler cosmopolitanism. When you look at a map like that What We Watch map, you're not seeing a lot of evidence of highly-cultured Americans sort of going, hey, let me see what the latest jam is in Nigeria. Like, that's not happening. What is happening is that Polish workers are going to the UK and so some of the top-trending videos in the UK are in Polish. And you start seeing that artifact based on that labor movement. Now, over time, I suspect that's going to have some really interesting and deep and pervasive cultural influences. I counted seven faux Irish bars on my walk this morning because this is a city that's been built by migration and by those interaction of cultures over time. And so my sense is that those connections and the bridging that sort of comes out of that is in the long run probably going to be a lot more important and a lot more impactful than the sort of conscious how do I choose what's great In all the different cultures' version of cosmopolitanism. But I I totally want to acknowledge different power levels, different imbalances that sort of come into it, hoping that this question of how do we look for the perspective in the immobile without getting on the airplane, without crossing the border, that there is some way to sort of look at that definition of there's another way of looking at things, and we may have responsibilities to people who look at things a different way. I have another question. Could it be less hard than those last couple of questions? I hope not.
0: Uh, let's see. So I, I'm thinking. One of the things I was thinking about digital cosmopolitans and this notion of cosmopolitan too uh, is this kind of individual, and that, that I should you know think about my media diet and, and expanding that and thinking more healthfully about the kinds of things I can do. But I want to turn to a question that you raise. Towards the end of the book, uh, when you ask how do groups, how yep. can groups leverage diversity? Because in some ways, I mean, it overlaps, but I, right. I think it's in ways it's a different kind of question. So nope. I, I'm wondering. I mean, I, I know I, I read it, but still, why do not tell?
1: Well, so, so you're, you're, you're pointing at one of the things that's most broken in the book, right? So um,
0: like Part one, right? I mean, this, this is the first. Well, the so 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 project you have. So so I, I give you first. <laughs> so I appreciate
1: it. Part. I. I I I have been lucky enough that the book is actually getting read and reviewed. I am unlucky enough that I actually read those reviews. Uh, So I I now know what a lot of the flaws are in the book. And then after reading all the reviews, I then went and recorded the audio book, which is basically the experience of sort of wincing and going, oh yeah, that's where this is broken. But one of the things that people have very helpfully pointed out is that because the book is trying to make you a convert, to this idea that cognitive diversity is interesting and that you would benefit from looking at a more global information diet, it puts way too much responsibility on you. And in many ways, what I'm actually saying is that the reason it's so hard to get out of these information orbits, the reason it's so easy to end up with homophilous information is institutions. It's newspapers. It's social network companies. It's Facebook. Institutions are incredibly powerful in sort of reinforcing these sorts of connections. But I also make the argument that institutions are sometimes the ones who've actually gone and embraced this the most thoroughly. So there's a great study done on Facebook data at Harvard. And so researchers got access to data at Harvard very early on in Facebook's development, and they decided to look really closely at what the actual friendship patterns were online and offline. It was a great way to sort of have a proxy for how friendships actually form at college. And so what they did is they took the Facebook data. They ignored people who said they were friends because they assumed that friending is just I'm friends with everybody. I'll friend all of you in this room. It doesn't actually mean that we're friends. But they looked at photo co-presence. If we're standing in a photo with arms around each other, we're probably friendly. And then they started looking at all the sort of demographic characteristics and what they ended up finding was that at Harvard, the patterns of homophily are utterly profound. It's not just that Asian American kids hang out together. There's no Asian American. The Vietnamese kids hang out together. It's not that, you know, people of African descent hang out together. It's the Nigerians hang out together. The math majors from Michigan hang out together. But the one thing that works the one thing that gets people to do strong tie formation across racial, cultural, religious boundaries is kids who room together. And they find in the data that Harvard is incredibly careful not to put you with another white dude as your roommate. They try really, really hard to sort of say, part of the educational experience here is that we want you to meet different people. And we know that one of the few things that's going to work is that if I have to share a room with you, I'm going to form a common bond, even if we have to do a lot of cross-cultural bridging in one fashion or another. So they very consciously decide, to do it. So institutions could be incredibly powerful at doing this if they decide that it's part of their mission. The trick is it actually has to be part of a mission. So corporations that look at this sort of say should I get more cognitive diversity? Should I try to figure out how to diversify my teams? And the answer is If you are trying to get a whole lot of people to do the same work at the same time in harmony, do not add diversity to that process. It turns out that adding cognitive diversity to a problem-solving process makes it take longer, makes more conflict within it, makes everyone who's involved with it uncomfortable. And what happens is that people involved with diverse teams have less confidence in the solutions that they come up with, but they can turn out to be consistently better. So you actually get better problem solving on certain types of problems, but much lower confidence that you came to the right solution because you're still wrestling with this question of sort of where the diversity comes into play. So for me, where the book was sort of trying to go on this was to basically say, I thought my internet was going to sort of explode my head. I thought I was going to be paying attention to Chinese cinema and, and, and to the latest music from Chile. I didn't get it. I actually think it's beneficial. How would we get there? Well, the first thing I need to do is I have to persuade some other people that this is a good way to go. And so I ended up very much putting it on the individuals, hoping that those individuals within institutions might sort of take the leadership on it. In the very narrow sense that a couple of my grad students appear to have read the book and it may be influencing their research, I've done okay. If it goes a little further, and you got someone at Facebook or someone at Microsoft or someone at the New York Times thinking about this, that would do even better. But this larger question of how you modify an institution to take advantage of diversity, I, I'm, not, I'm not there. And, and if I keep writing on this, maybe, maybe I hope I'll get there, but I'm, I'm definitely not there. I mean, It
0: sounds like one idea is more arbitrary connections, right? You can just try grouping in different people as best you can. Which is what, what Harvard does. right? Harvard yeah. does for that. And and then, but another is that there are some kinds of problems that are better with diverse groups and yep. some kinds of activities that are better with homophilist groups. And, and I'm, you talk a little bit about this, but how would you describe, so one, we already know if it's the same thing, everybody should be doing the same thing and working in tandem and, and that's the kind of problem that's best right. done with the groups together. How, how do we recognize this other type of problem?
1: It's problems with a broad solution space. Okay. So if you have a problem where there's a single right answer, and the job is to get that right answer very quickly, and there's very little ambiguity about it, diversity is not going to help you very much. If there's a problem for which there are many different high-quality answers... There's pretty good research. A lot of this is it's mathematics, actually. It's uh, Scott Page and some of his collaborators have sort of looked at putting algorithms within a solution space and sort of find that, you know, a solution problem of traversing a tree and finding the highest value number, the best algorithms will underperform a diverse team of algorithms. So if there's a whole lot of information, a very broad space, lots of good possible solutions, basically really tricky, broad, multifaceted problems, then it's probably worth this sort of investment. And so when I make my vague, hand-wavy statements about let's solve global warming, you know, in part, what I'm trying to say is that there are these sets of enormous problems that probably do require us to sort of dig in and try to get into some of the really hard, practical work of trying to figure out how we take on cognitive diversity. Uh, let's,
0: let's go here and I see another one in the back, too. Uh, Jim Parry, Comparative Media Studies. Right. Uh, So I have a question for the two of you because uh, one of you writes about fan behavior and fan culture and fandom, and the others writes about uh, cosmopolitanism and so forth. And I'm wondering how these two concepts uh, relate uh, as you know, just approaches to media. Sure, well, so, right, so I write about Japanese rap music uh, and also about how Japanese animation went global. I'm interested in these uh, processes of globalization from below. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about both hip-hop and anime is that the cultural elites, people in record companies and magazines, the... The government of Japan. They, none of them thought that something like hip hop would take root in Japan. Right. Same with anime. They didn't for many years. They never thought it would spread around the world and become a kind of global force. Uh, you know, as one of the producers said, I always like this line. He says, you know, anime is like junk food. He says nobody respects it, but everybody eats a little bit of it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and there's something to that, right? And, and so that's what's for me, that's the connection between popular culture and civic media is, I mean, I initially when I was looking at a project for my Ph.D., I was going to look at protests against the Japanese Olympics, the Nagano Olympics. And I interviewed all these social movement people, and the Olympics were going to be a disaster for the environment, for the people living in the area. And the people who were going to, a part of the movement were on the right side of the argument, but it was also clear they were going to lose. They were just going to be literally bulldozed over. So the the story I'd be able to tell is the story of the failure of a social movement. I thought, well, wow, okay, you know, this, it was good. That'd be a fine thing to do. But then that's when popular culture became more interesting to me because that's when these ideas spread, even though people at the top don't believe it. Uh, and so that's where it, it is about the power of the fans and the grassroots and and that that's, those kinds of dynamics are really interesting to me. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think of it in these terms, but now that I hear these terms and think about them, I realize there's a way to read the things I've seen a lot in some of these terms. You know, and Some groups are together and some groups are diverse, but they take unusual approaches to problems and they find things that even the professionals couldn't find, amplify them, and all of a sudden that becomes a whole new direction. For a cultural movement, uh, it's it's quite fascinating to me, and and so so that's you know now that's why I'm sort of interested in the civic media move is to say the problem with entertainment though is it always gets pulled away from the politics, and so how do you you know and other people are working this Harry Potter alliance and. Andrew Slack, and then lots of people are sort of thinking in this space as well. But that's one of the things.
1: Whereas for me, what what I would be really interested in, and sort of where I look at Ian's work and sort of find some resonance with this, is I'm really interested in how music from very specific, geographically bounded communities in the United States has become sort of this adaptable form that becomes an incredibly important vernacular music in all sorts of different corners of the world and how an art form that's incredibly quirkily, uniquely Japanese has sort of now gone on to have this sort of global audience and what I would say on, on both of them by the way is you'd The the globalist in me, right, the the guy who's hoping for that conversation and dialogue is always looking for that back channel, right? So one of the first times you and I were on stage together was with uh, Jizza of of Wu-Tang Clan. And because we're all academics and we all have to basically say, let me ask the question about exactly what I care about, about what you're saying, (laughs) my question to Jizza was, are we ever going to get to the point where these really rich hip-hop cultures in other countries are going to make it back into American hip-hop. What would it take to get American rappers listening to Senegalese hip-hop? To which his response was, it's not going to happen. You know, We've got the source, and you know everything else is sort of derivative, and there's no way that it's going to come back in the other direction. And I think that may be true in some ways with anime that it continues to be the source. And so it's really interesting to watch these very powerful idiosyncratic forms of cultural expression get sort of adapted and spread But it's also really interesting to me that it doesn't become this sort of back-and-forth dialogue, or at least at this point it hasn't become this back-and-forth dialogue. Or if it does, it's at this very elite, high-culture level. I was in Senegal a couple of months ago. I was hanging out with a bunch of Senegalese rappers who are also political activists. And they were talking about how excited they were that they were going to start recording with American rap stars. And I said, well, this is great. This is wonderful. Who are you recording with? And the answer is M1 of Dead Prez. So the most radical, sort of far left, you know, amazing stuff, but not exactly what everyone's listening to on the streets. That's where that sort of cosmopolitan connection back to go and try to figure out how do I rap and Wolof about about know these things. It, that's where the connection was. It wasn't that sort of back channel of the popular music going in the other direction. And you know that, that's an interesting challenge to, to some of the ideas that I'm trying to throw up here.
0: Exactly. And then you know, I think, you know I started studying Japanese rap music in 1995 and I remember how many years was it that I was told over and over by American record company people and magazine writers, there will never be an Asian rapper that's popular in America. <laughs> <I'm> like, ha! <laughs> Take that Gangnam style. All right, a uh, question in the back, yeah, please. I, I, feel like I, guess, um, I want to ask you about the yeah, yeah. I want to ask about what I think was an intentional sort of shift that happened during the fall, which was that at the end we started talking about um, using what you are
2: calling high internet interconnected communities for problem solving. And at the same time, you, you mentioned Leah and other people who are talking about contemporary cosmopolitanism, and you also started with the New York Times and the New York Times. So this for me calls um, the history of relationship between media practice. saw that
1: Sure. Let, let me try, and I'm I'm not trying completely with you, but let me let me see if I if I get there. Um, so in in this way that Anderson is sort of arguing that print allows us to imagine a community. I'm arguing that the internet is allowing us to imagine communities on multiple different levels, right? And I think there's a very powerful strain of rhetoric that sort of says, the internet, global. You know, when we call something the World Wide Web, when we build network maps over years and years and years that sort of show everybody interconnected in one fashion or another, we're giving a particular impression of who we should imagine is in that internet community. And I think it's actually very different than who actually is in that internet community. And so when you start looking at these communities that try to activate or try to do something, I think there's a fairly common pattern. You know, I'm on Reddit. Millions of people are on Reddit. So we've got the whole world behind us. And by the way, most of the people that I talk to seem to feel exactly the same way that I do because they're also young white men educated in a certain way who play the same video games. Therefore, everyone's behind me and therefore, you know, very soon Rand Paul will be the president of the United States. And there's these really interesting sort of cognitive fallacies that come into place. It's, it's a universalist view as well as sort of not being able to see the other members of the group and realizing how sort of trapped in a homophilist group you are. And so what I'm trying to suggest is that to the extent that we're looking for social change and transformation, we probably need much more accurate pictures of those communities and how those communities are sort of affecting our information flow. The reason in many ways I'm looking at this through the perspective of media and often through news media is that at the end of the day... I believe that the reason we care about the news is we care about our possibility of civic engagement and action. And so a way to sort of frame why we think that global perspective or broader perspective is important is I hope not because maybe knowing that Obama does or doesn't have a good position on Syria is going to change our vote in four years. I hope that it's actually because we're engaged in some sort of more problem-solving form of civics, even if it's not trying to solve a problem like disarming Syria of chemical weapons, might be a smaller, more tractable problem where we have the ability to sort of put our hands in and, and, and actually get involved with solving a problem. So what I think I'm trying to say in all of this is that I think there's a natural internet tendency for us to find a small group of like-minded individuals and assume that that group is the world. And I think that that's a dangerous thing to do on at least two levels. I think it projects a uncritical way of approaching the solutions where we assume that our local solution is going to globalize smoothly, and I think we're crippling ourselves in that we're not actually looking for the information perspectives that we would actually need to solve problems. Do I think that we are going to change the New York Times by urging people to build better problem-solving institutions? No. What I am trying to say is that the reason that I think it might makes sense to pay attention to this question of cognitive diversity and to information pathways is that I think to the extent that you are looking to be an effective citizen and to be engaged in one fashion or another rather than approaching this from a pure consumerist model that's a reason to look for the diversity if I accept your premise that we're mostly consumers in this space I really don't have any reason to sort of suggest diversity or risk at the end of the day if you're a consumer and you're comfortable that's great but it's really only when you get out of that consumer mode and into the mode of having agency that that notion of diversity and risk starts becoming. A, uh, so I, I hope that's helpful on what you put forward.
0: Yeah, uh, We have time for one one two more questions, please. So, I'm Marcella
3: Shablevich. I'm a postdoc at CMS, and um, I'm sort of interested in hearing more of what you have to say about this bridge figure. Because I'm thinking about bridge figures and I'm thinking about how, you know, we've always had bridge figures, right? Like I'm thinking of, you know, missionaries, right? And I think it's sort of the new iteration of the missionary has happened through, like, Tony well the and sort of white savior industrial complex, right, that sprang up around it. I think of academics like Ian, like myself, like anybody who works culturally. And so I guess the question is, for you, how do you see digital media changing the nature of who acts as the bridge figure, or is it just that the same people who always acted as bridge figures are just using digital media now?
1: So, so your first jump is one that I'm, I, I want to be careful about making the jump with you. So your first jump is to, is to a missionary, and I would argue that. In being present as a missionary in a community, on the one hand, it's certainly to your benefit to bridge, right? You need to figure out what's going on in the local culture to figure out how to do it. But it's not necessarily. a a symmetric relationship at that point. You're there because I need to persuade you to accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, which makes it really hard to have that back channel in the other direction of, and remember, my definition of cosmopolitan here is obvious cosmopolitanism, which says there are different ways to live in the world, and we may have responsibilities to each other. So... I'm not saying that everybody who is bicultural, everyone who's in cultural encounter is a bridge. What I'm saying is that a bridge is actually someone who's working really hard to try to broker communication between both sides. And so in the book, I end up talking about. It, it, distinctions within it. I, I, I make a distinction between bridges and xenophiles. Xenophiles as people who are looking for inspiration from other cultures, but who are not actually in the position to do the bridging behind and, and my example to open that chapter is talking about Paul Simon's decision to work with South African musicians. And it's not because Paul Simon had smart things to say about the boycott and apartheid. He actually didn't. He was kind of an idiot about it. He just really got psyched about a piece of music by a band called the Boy boys. So he actually had to find a bridge who was very smart about these things. He found a record producer named Hilton Rosenthal who had been the guy responsible for uh, Johnny Clegg and Jaluku which was the first major interracial band in South Africa sort of changing all of these taboos about white and Zulu musicians playing together and he was the guy who was able to sort of broker that conversation. So I think these bridges are are maybe rarer and, and more uncommon maybe more precious than I was sort of giving the impression of instead of going there. What I think happens with digital media and bridging is that bridging used to require a huge amount of sustained physical co-presence. And I think bridging now involves a lot of people who have been pulled out of culture. So I think it's Quite likely that a lot of people in this audience who are living outside of their home country. So, you know, you're sitting next to Jing Wang, and I know that she's following Chinese news very, very closely. And when I want to understand what's going on with NGO registration in China, Jing is able to explain it to me. And in explaining it to me, she's able to put the context around it, knowing something of what I know and what I don't know about the politics around NGOs in China. So she's able to sort of be in that position she's much better able to do this than she would have been 20 years ago because she's getting that news every day in real time, that information sort of coming in, and she has the possibility of being an amplifier in that bridging process. She doesn't just have to tell me about NGOs in China. She might actually be telling the world about NGOs in China. So I think we're at this point where if we can find people who are committed to that hard work of bridging, they have the possibility of reaching much broader audiences. And my hope is that they become far more influential nodes and networks than they probably are in in a previous world.
0: Maybe as the the last comment then, tell us where you're going from here. A a few words of what what the next steps are for you.
1: So, um, well, it's funny, because there's a sense in which there's a lot of things that I want to build coming out of this book. So I've already built things that haven't worked so well like Global Voices, although I love Global Voices, but there's other experiments that I want to, to do sort of coming out of this book, and some of those experiments are around um, questions of discovery mechanisms. How How would we build tools to make it easier to discover what's really great in another part of the world in another culture how would we discover bridges who are actually doing the work to sort of do the translation between these cultures Um, but I have to say another thing that's sort of come out of this for me is a realization that the shifts that I'm hoping for in this book the shift to and awareness of the interconnection, and caring about the places from which we're getting our stuff, and 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 where people are coming from that we might actually have political and social obligations. These may be shifts that it's actually really hard to accomplish in the sort of short periods of time that I'm that I'm hoping to see results. And I find myself now asking questions about efficacy. And so I'm asking a lot of questions these days about civics and how does one engage in civics and actually see a response at the end of it. and That's in part because I'm working with a lot of students who are really passionate about social change and sort of asking those questions about how does it get accomplished. But I think I'm also sort of realizing that some of the questions that I was taking on in this book are are questions where it's actually very hard to have effects in real time and that you know, again, well I'm I'm hoping that you know what you hope when you write a book like this is that, you know, maybe I'm gonna start a trend, maybe I'm gonna start a movement. You know, I'm four or five months into this, and the answer is, you know, there there are not a lot of people lining up behind me as Pied Piper on all of this. That change may be sort of longer and more subtle. I now want to think about what are the sort of different mechanisms and methods by which people seek change. So a lot of my work right now is sort of asking this question about where does civics play out in a digital age? What are the different ways that people start looking for change and I do think it ties back to some of these questions about who are we hearing from, is there a way to do social change work that isn't immediately locking us into those sort of tribes of all the people who think exactly like me and and for me the real hope on this is that you know a lot of this work is, is through my students I'm really thrilled about the fact that Nathan Matias who's my first doctoral student has as his dissertation topic at the moment the question of how do you collaborate across diversity? And for me, sort of watching him explore that over the next four years is, is sort of one of the big things that, that comes out of this.
0: Nice. Thank you very much. Thank we'll you a, very a, a much. Reception, uh, here. I hope there's some food. I'll check. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we may I have a reception, able, which means we stand and, and, and mill around and talk and about that. Yeah. At least come on up and say hello if you like, and thank you to Ethan.
3: Thanks nice <laughs> a little.